No, I always felt that it could be resolved that she would have to be somewhere, that she couldn't have just disappeared like that. And the fact that it was said that she'd jumped from the bridge, that wasn't convincing for me. So I, I just thought, well, she has to be somewhere. She can't just have disappeared. In episode three, we heard how Donald Cameron and Ian Cairns visited the Cowes police station at around 9.05am on the morning of September 23, 1986. They met with Sergeant Cliff Ash and both went on to provide police statements. In their statements, both men described that Donald's brother, Fergus Cameron, had been worried about his girlfriend, Beth Barnard, after his wife Vivian found out they were having an affair. Donald and Ian had both come from visiting Beth's farmhouse on McPhee's Road in Rill, where they discovered the body of the young woman on her bedroom floor. Despite knowing Beth was dead, neither of the men could quite bring themselves to report it. Instead, Donald Cameron told police, Um, it's Beth. I think she's not well. In this episode, Vicky Petratus details the discovery of Beth Barnard's body, including the brutal and extensive injuries she sustained. Please be advised that this episode contains details some listeners may find distressing. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Senior Constable Peter McHenry had been out at a job when he got called back to the police station by Sergeant Cliff Ash. After hearing what Donald and Ian had to say, Ash knew the police had to attend the house in McPhee's Road Rill to find out what had happened to Beth Barnard. Was she not well, like Donald Cameron had said? What did that mean? According to his official police statement, Peter McHenry arrived back at the police station at 9.15am. If Cliff Ash had indeed been listening to Donald and Ian for 10 minutes, like he told us, that would mean they arrived at the police station at 9.05am. Here's Peter McHenry's recollection of the morning. 
when they got there, I was actually on the road. I was heading out to uh, the aerodrome, the air ambulance that had run off the runway. I was, I was going out to give them a hand. Just as I was leaving the township, Cowes, um, I got a call from Cliff to return to the station. I tried to explain to him what I was doing. He said, no, you've got to come back. So I, uh, I headed back in, and that's where I saw Don and Ian standing at the front counter. Cliff basically said, right, we're going. We'll follow you out there. I, I ended up driving uh, myself and Cliff out, following Don and Ian. On the drive between the Cowes Police Station and Beth's house in McPhee's Road Rill, Beth had simply been declared not well. For all the police officers knew, she might still be alive. It's easy to imagine this moment in time, to pause and think about the minutes before anyone on the island knew for certain Beth was dead. Before the locals all gathered over coffee to express their horror, and before they knew that violence had struck their small community in the worst way. When they got to the house, Peter McHenry stood out the front of the property with Donald and Ian, while Cliff Ash went inside to see what had happened. While Cliff was inside, Peter chatted to Donald and Ian. They didn't seem to be um, upset. It wasn't until I was in the car that Cliff said, I believe something's happened out there. Uh, I still wasn't aware, even when we got there, what was going on. I stayed outside with Don and Ian when we got to the house and uh, the conversation was, you know, we were just talking, uh, just general conversation. While crime scenes are usually off limits, Cliff Ash later told us the reason he did enter the house while McHenry waited outside with Donald and Ian. Given their vague description of Beth being not well, he thought, what if she's in there bleeding to death and I'm out here guarding the house. He described going into the house. The back door and the screen door were ajar. They opened onto a long corridor. Ash only had to take a couple of steps inside before coming to the first bedroom where he found the body. Beth Barnard lay on the floor, her head toward the door where Ash stood, her blue eyes half opened. She was covered from the nose down by a white floral quilt. A pool of congealed blood on the carpet around her head made it obvious to Ash that she was dead, even though he could see no injuries. He bent down and pinched a corner of the quilt and carefully peeled it away, revealing a horror he'd never forget. Her throat had been cut to the bone like a slaughterhouse animal. A savage knife blow had sliced through her top lip smashing out a front tooth. Ash quickly replaced the quilt before backing out of the room. Cliff went inside. Uh, He's probably inside for five, five minutes maybe. Then he come back out and he seemed visibly upset. Um, So uh, then that's when I found out. I asked Peter McHenry to revisit the context of his conversation with Donald and Ian in light of what he now knows. Was he surprised when Cliff Ash came back outside looking visibly upset while he was standing with the two men having a regular conversation? Had they even mentioned Beth's death to him? 
No, I, I didn't ask, but I would have thought that uh, they would have said something to me. Well, I was surprised, yeah. We, uh, yeah, the conversation basically stopped after that when Cliff came back out and, and said, look, she's gone. Yeah, uh, I, I knew nothing of that until, until Cliff returned. So if Cliff Ash, a seasoned police officer, was looking pale and shaken when he came out of the house, I asked Peter McHenry to compare his memory of Cliff to his memory of Donald and Ian, who said in their statements that they too had seen what Cliff had seen. Oh, look, uh, totally different. Uh, Cliff was visibly upset. I didn't see that with Don or Ian. I wasn't looking for it, but uh, I didn't see it. But uh, you didn't have to look at Cliff. He was definitely uh, visibly upset, um, taken aback, yeah. We know Donald Cameron had seen what Cliff Ash saw. Here are his words taken straight from his statement. Just inside the door, I saw Beth lying on the floor with a doona over her. Her face was almost covered, but I still recognised her and she appeared to be dead. At the same time of seeing her, she was on her back, face up. I yelled out to Ian, come here quick, the worst has happened, or something like that. And we know from Ian Kansas' statement that he did just that. The minute he confirmed a body and a crime scene, Cliff Ash called the Wonthaggy CIB, who sent a crew straight over. After the CIB detectives arrived, Peter McHenry was asked to go to the New Haven Medical Centre to collect Dr Paul Flood and to take him out to see Fergus, where he was staying at Marnie and Ian's house. It seemed like an odd request, but Peter followed orders from the more senior police around him and did as he was asked. He remembers taking Ian Cairns with him. Probably around the same time the CIB were arriving at the house in McPhee's Road, a local woman called Glenda Frost would take a short phone call that would haunt her for years to come. It would be a day before she realised its significance, but when her phone rang at 10am, it was just another phone call from a woman who she'd spoken to occasionally on the phone and saw regularly at the community house. It was Vivian Cameron. Over the years, I've kept in contact with Glenda Frost. Every year or so, she would ring and we'd have a chat. Recently, she suffered some short-term memory loss. Certain things I still remember. Isn't that funny? It's a long time ago. I know. Mm. And because I have definitely um, gone through a little phase where um, I've got short-term, that's all right. Mainly, I'm fine with the past, Mm. usually. While Glenda can still recall the events of the 23rd of September 1986, I was lucky to find a bunch of micro-cassettes from when I interviewed her back around 1991 or 1992, just five years after it happened. By that time, she had left the island for good and set up a patchwork fashion shop in Richmond. I sat with Glenda and her friend Pam, who'd been with her when she received the phone call, and we chatted adjacent to the inner city traffic, about the moment her phone rang at 10am on Tuesday the 23rd of September, 1986. Nobody knows I'm at home except Mum, I'd better answer it, because normally I'm at work, you see, and when it was Viv, I was a bit relieved because I thought, oh, she's not going to come. 
affect me. And it was only to do with the gifty thing. But it was just a normal conversation and it wasn't until the little few minutes that she went off, she said, oh, just a minute, and the noise in the background. I said something to Pamela standing there, I said, oh, I won't be long to this, you know, just to do with a bit of patchwork. Um, and it wasn't a long conversation, but it was true to form of what she was asked. I mean, nobody else could have rung. In the court, they said, how did you know it was Viv? You know, on the other end. I mean, it's no doubt it was Viv. Firstly, I mean, her voice I knew. You know, you can pick up voices. Plus the conversation. It was so, it was just something between two women. It was just as simple as it had been something um, different. But, you know, it was the little gift she was looking for. Most importantly, Glenda Frost heard voices in the background. When we spoke all those years ago about this, you said to me uh, that when you spoke to Vivian, you heard voices in the background. And you said to her, are the kids home today? Yeah. And she was a bit non-committal. She didn't say yay or nay, really. She says, oh, she more or less just passed it off with, oh, it's all right, and went on talking about what she wanted to talk about. Yeah. So I never really knew that. But what, what that said to you at the time was that she wasn't alone. That's right. Yeah, definitely. I thought it would be rude to say who's there sort of thing, so I just said, oh, you know, are the boys home? And we know that one boy was at school and one boy was, wasn't. So did you think at the time that it was two, two voices? Yeah, yeah, I did. So potentially there was two people with Yeah, you. and I would never have known if it was an adult or I just heard voices. Vivian asked Glenda where she could buy a patchwork house as a retirement gift for Isabel Adicote, who was finishing up at the community house. Glenda gave her the name and number of a local woman who she could ring. She heard voices in the background and asked Vivian if the boys were home. Vivian was non-committal and then the phone call ended. Glenda had no idea that a body had been discovered in Rill. News of that would take until the afternoon to trickle to the cafes and workplaces until it became talk of the small island community. But for now, it was just Glenda taking a phone call and the police getting on with their job. Around the time Peter McHenry was on his way to pick up Dr Paul Flood from the New Haven Medical Centre, Marnie called the doctor who told her that the police officer was on his way with Ian to pick him up and that he would be heading to her house. It sounds like Marnie was home by this time because in her statement she said, They arrived a short time later and Dr Flood told us that Beth was dead. Dr Flood took Fergus aside and spent some time with him. Here's Peter McHenry's recollection. Well, I'm, I don't know why I was sent out there first, um, but, but I was instructed that's what I was to do, go out and check on Fergus with Dr Flood. It seemed a, a strange way to go about it. Um, I would have thought that uh, first off we should have taken him out to, out to the house where um, Beth was just to confirm everything. Uh, that wasn't until after we'd been out to see Fergus Cameron uh, out of the uh, farmhouse 
uh, well, in my statement, it's uh, after lunch. It struck me as strange, but uh, during the senior constable, I just, I just went with what I was told to do. Peter McHenry's best estimate is that he arrived at the Cairns farm around 10.45 or 11am. I've always been interested in this moment. It's easy to assume that Fergus would have been on edge. He'd asked his sister to try and ring Beth and he'd sent Donald and Ian to her house to check on her. But given that Fergus said Beth might have headed for Melbourne the night before, I wonder if he felt that was also a possibility for her not answering the phone. Peter McHenry wasn't in the room when Dr Paul Flood broke the news, but he does describe Fergus as being upset as they entered. At this stage, Fergus knows Vivian is missing, and he sent his brother and brother-in-law out to check on Beth. So perhaps a doctor and a uniformed police officer arriving in his bedroom is indication enough that things have turned out badly. He was certainly visibly upset before we got there. He was very quiet, he was uh, very ashen. Mm. I I remember he he was very white, very silent. But Peter doesn't stay in the room. Instead, he goes out to the kitchen and stands with Ian Cairns, waiting for the doctor to finish with Fergus. He noted that Ian Cairns was unusually quiet. Usually if uh, something like that's happened, people really, uh, they're almost explosive with their conversation. Mm. They're either angry or very visibly upset. I can't remember that at all. Uh, Thinking back on it, it's very weird. Uh, It it was very strange, the whole set-up. When I was researching the book, I met legendary detective Alan McFadden. At that stage, he was still working at the Wonthaggy CIB, and being female, I managed to avoid his bone-crusher handshake that left my co-author wincing. Sadly, Ellen McFadden passed away in 2018 on the 11th of November, which fittingly is Remembrance Day. So when I found the tape of our original interview from around 1991 or 1992, it was especially poignant. Like Peter McHenry, Alan McFadden noticed something unusual about the way the family were after the murder. Well, no, not really. I mean, it's, it's, it's far. Well, no, not really. I mean, it's uh, it's far from common. It's it's you know the first time they've had something, been involved in something like this where it's affected them as such, and you have a situation where they appear, you know, to be a very composed, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. I mean, maybe I suppose it's different if someone is involved, has been involved in these types of situations and you sort of take it in our stride. It was very unusual to see how everyone was so uh, so composed. McFadden first saw this with Donald Cameron and Ian Cairns at the gate of Beth's farmhouse. I remember him saying to me years ago, you'd think these blokes discover bodies every day. But of course, as a cop, he knew that people react differently in times of crisis and he didn't want to read anything into it. But he noticed. That was something that did strike me, yes. That was something that did strike me, yes. I mean, I'm not uh, uh, making anything out of that at all, but it was something that I was uh, sort of 
made mental note of as such. And I thought, here we have a particularly nasty sort of murder and everyone seems to be very composed. Ellen McFadden was the second cop to go into the house. Cliff Ash had ascertained that Beth Barnard was deceased, but she was covered with a doona and, as per protocol, Ash didn't want to disturb the scene. As a detective, McFadden's job was to go in, check the crime scene, then report back to the police communication centre, known as D24, who would then contact Homicide. While Ash had only partially lifted the quilt and put it back down after he'd seen Beth's cut throat, McFadden lifted the quilt all the way. He was the first one to see the huge letter A carved into her chest and stomach. And I went in and I had a look and I, I had a look under the, under the quilt and it was quite obvious she was well and truly dead. Her eyes were still open and she had her head almost cut off and she had a big A carved in her stomach right down and right across. A question I always used to ask police officers was how they reacted to such horror. I suppose we all think about scenes like this through our own lens. How would we react? But detectives can't approach crime scenes emotionally. They have to practice a professional detachment that lets them do their job. McFadden was no different, but he admitted this one was difficult. Beth was 23 when she died. McFadden was acutely aware of the loss of the young woman and how it would impact her family. I remember at the time, he talked to me at length about how aware he was that in death, Beth's life would be an open book as the police officers combed through her bedroom, her house, and ultimately her life. You can't afford to let yourself become become emotionally involved during that period of time. There are times when you, when you, it's almost impossible. We're all human. You've got a situation where, say, you, you may have children involved. I think any policeman would tell you, any detective, it doesn't matter how long he's been around, it's very, very hard when you have young children involved and it looks as though they've been knocked around or killed, you know, road accident or murder, be whatever it might be, and... I'll defy anyone to say they're not upset over anything like that. And also, the other hardest part is telling the relatives because of their loved ones or whatever it might be. That's, uh, that's, that's the hardest part. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. 
Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Once the CIB had attended the crime scene, the homicide squad was called in. Detectives Rory O'Connor and Gary Hunter were the on-call crew. Rory O'Connor is retired now, but he still remembers the case over 30 years later. We were working at the office at the time. I think it was uh, it was early in the morning. Uh, when I say early in the morning, we're looking at after nine o'clock. We'd been uh, told that the body had been found in the house in Brill. So we just collected our uh, all our notebooks and off we went. And there was four of us went down at that particular stage, I think. Homicide detectives have a different context when it comes to murder. They need to read the scene. The body had been left where it fell, and that tells them something. Blood patterns and stains tell them the trajectory of a struggle. Was anything taken? Could robbery have been a motive? When detectives Rory O'Connor and Gary Hunter were briefed at the scene, they were told about the fight the night before, where Vivian had attacked Fergus with a wine glass when he admitted having an affair with the dead woman. Vivian Cameron and the family land cruiser were both missing. Donald Cameron had filled in the local cops, telling them how Vivian had then arranged for someone to mind her two young boys. Although family members had checked her home, they had failed to locate Vivian Cameron or the family's Toyota land cruiser. Rory O'Connor knew that finding Vivian was a top priority at this early stage. She was what police like to call a person of interest. Here's what the scene looked like. In the back bedroom of the house, the body lay on the floor on an angle, feet toward one of the two single beds in the room and head toward the doorway. A white chest of drawers next to the bed was splattered with droplets of blood and the bed and striped wallpaper on the wall next to it was smeared with blood. A blue blanket on the bed was crooked and covered some of the blood smears, so someone must have replaced it. There was a tiny lamp on the chest of drawers that hadn't been knocked over, which suggested that whatever struggle had taken place, it had been swift and contained. On the chest of drawers were two soft toys a penguin and a cow. A straw sun hat with a blue ribbon sat perched on the bedpost of the second single bed in the room. It hadn't been knocked off. Leaning on the second bed was a large poster-sized picture of Beth smiling and holding two penguins. Here are Rory O'Connor's first impressions of the crime scene. There was no cover-up or hiding the body or anything like that. This was a straight-out frenzied murder. We believe the entry was via the back door. There was um, a woman laying in the passageway and there was a uh, blanket over, I think, when we got there, which has obviously been removed and put back down again. And uh, I think anybody who attended that particular stage uh, probably uh, left the premises, even though... We don't know whether anyone walked around in there or anything like that. But uh, so we were called and we took forensics and photographics with us. But uh, we let photographics go and do the complete scene first. And then um, we let uh, fingerprints in there 
and then uh, we went and had a look at ourselves to try and work out what we could from what was uh, the evidence that was there. What it looked like was this. Beth had been attacked in her bed. Then, after a short, violent struggle, she was pulled or fell out of bed. Then perhaps her throat was cut and she died. After carving the letter A into her chest, the killer has taken a doona from another bedroom and covered the body with it. Blood smears around the tap in the bathroom suggested the killer had washed their hands, but they would probably still be covered in Beth's blood. There was a cigarette in an ashtray in the bathroom. Had the killer had a cigarette after washing up? The rest of the house was undisturbed, but there were two cigarette butts in an ashtray next to a phone on the kitchen bench. Had the killer called someone after the murder? It's worth interrupting the story for a moment here to answer the question, was Beth a smoker? Could any of these cigarette butts have been hers? I put the question to Beth's friend, Wendy Orchard. She wasn't a smoker, was she? Not that I remember, no. Her mother and father both smoked, and I don't remember Beth ever smoking. Certainly not in front of me, anyway. After the initial examination, crime scene examiners took over the scene. They document everything and keep the traffic in the scene to an absolute minimum. Once photographics had taken pictures of the body as it was found, the blue and white floral doona was removed and the true horror of the attack was revealed to homicide detectives. Beth was smeared with blood from her face to her knees. It looked like someone had rubbed their hands in a circular motion around her legs. The pink nightgown she wore was almost completely soaked with blood and it was pulled up, exposing the letter A carved into her stomach. Lying next to the body was a small knife. It too was smeared with blood. Beth's hands and one elbow had defence-type wounds, suggesting that she had tried to ward off the knife blows. Her savage throat wound and missing front tooth added to the horror. Once the scene was checked, forensics took over and everyone but the officers from the State Forensic Science Laboratory left the house. When homicide detectives took over the investigation, Ellen McFadden took orders from them. I was particularly interested in what he had to say because he would be the one to interview Fergus Cameron. We went round and we spoke to a, quite a number of people on the island and it was decided that I would take a statement from, from Fergus as to his background, etc., uh, and uh, as to events leading up to to the present time. When I look back at the notes that I've scrawled across Fergus Cameron's statement, it occurs to me that I've been asking the same questions for nearly 30 years. Why ring his sister at work to ask her to ring Beth? Why doesn't he ring Beth himself? How could he not remember what his last argument with Vivian was about seven weeks earlier but remember the first time he kissed Beth years earlier. I'm not an expert, but it seemed to me like Fergus's memory was selective. I asked Alan McFadden about that. Yes, I couldn't help but think that... Yeah, I couldn't help but 
think that maybe it might have been a good at some times and not so good on other occasions. I suppose as a detective, I've got to keep an open mind, but at the same time, you probably get suspicious of certain things and maybe for some time the suspicions are not really what they might be without foundation. But then again, sometimes, quite often those suspicions are well-founded and they could be suspicions that maybe other people may not pick up on. I've been doing this job for quite a few years. You've got to have some sort of expertise. I mean, I'm not calling him a liar at all. Not at all. I thought that he's... uh, Well, if I was involved in a situation such as this, virtually being in the middle of it, no matter how hard you try, you'd think you'd be pretty well be emotional. It seems that very cold. I mean, cold is not the right word, but the word is unemotional, put it that way. But I digress, because that interview wouldn't happen until Thursday. With the body of his girlfriend discovered on the Tuesday morning, Fergus Cameron was given two days before Alan McFadden would sit down with him for many hours and faithfully note down his words. Back at the crime scene, the homicide detectives were filled in with what police knew at this stage. Fight the night before between Fergus and Vivian Cameron, middle of the night phone call to mind the boys, Vivian Cameron missing, Beth Barnard dead. One of the first things the homicide detectives did was organised for police to stake out the homes of Vivian's brother Keith and sister Deirdre. One of the things Vivian's siblings were bitter about after the murder was being kept in the dark by the family and the police. Keith and Deirdre heard that Beth Barnard had been murdered and that Vivian was missing on the radio in the early afternoon of Tuesday the 23rd of September. Distraught, Deirdre immediately tried to contact the Cameron family. She finally got through on the phone to Ian Cairns, who seemed to her to be cagey about what had happened and where Vivian was. In a panic, Deirdre and Keith drove to Phillip Island to try and find out what had happened to their sister Vivian. Not only were the Camerons unable to provide answers, the police weren't helping either. When I first interviewed Rory O'Connor, back around 1991, he explained this process. The brother-in-law and the sister came in, and the brother was something. You know, why weren't we told? Why weren't we told, you know? The reason we weren't told is because we've got your house staked out, in case your front's up there, you know? Well, we had to check it. We sent vans around there. Everyone checked. I mean... Outside of the family, the last people to see Vivian Cameron were the hospital staff. Police went around to the Worley Hospital and spoke to the medical staff from the night before. Lisa Price gave a short statement about the visit Vivian and Fergus made to the hospital the night before. When detectives asked nurse Susan Bishop what Vivian Cameron had been wearing, she said, Vivian was wearing a pink mohair jumper with a round neck. She may have had a skivvy or something underneath because I remember something around her neck. Blue faded jeans and black ankle boots 
and a scarf around her hair. Asked if Vivian had any blood on her, Susan Bishop replied, I did not notice any blood on her or her clothing. While I can't find a reference for it, I'm sure there would have been police sent around to the Cameron farmhouse to look for Vivian Cameron on the Tuesday. With blood in the bathroom, splattered in the hallway and in the spare room, both on the floor and on the bed, the forensic team was instructed to process the Cameron house too. Rory O'Connor and Gary Hunter mentioned going around to the house to collect a photograph of Vivian to circulate as a missing person. It seems likely a member of the family must have met them there. Crime scene examiner Brian Gamble would work all day processing the Barnard farmhouse. He examined the crime scene with a professional eye. The blood smears all over Beth's body, he thought, were too many in number and covered too large an area to have been caused incidentally in the frenzied attack. He thought that perhaps the murderer had rubbed their hands deliberately all over the surface of Beth's arms and legs to cause the extensive smearing. Gamble also felt that the disfigurement to Beth's face, the stab wound in her upper lip and chin, and the knocking out of her front tooth, could have been deliberate. He imagined that the person who killed Beth had probably hated her and not only wanted her dead, but also wanted to destroy her physical beauty. Here's how he described the scene in his notes. The deceased was a female lying on her back. She was wearing a blood-soaked pink T-shirt and a pair of white and blue striped pants. The T-shirt was pulled up at the front, exposing her stomach, chest and right breast. Heavy blood smears were evident on the deceased's arms, face, neck, chest and abdomen and thighs. On the carpet between the deceased's left shoulder and the left side of her head was a pool of congealed blood. I observed the following wounds to the deceased. Her throat had been cut, she had a cut in her top lip and cuts on the inside of her fingers on both hands. What appeared to be a large letter A had been carved into her chest. Gamble tried to establish how the killer might have entered the house. He checked every window and door, finding them all closed and locked, except for the back door. He noted that dust around the windows was undisturbed, indicating to him that no one had forced their way in. Gamble collected exhibits and scrapings from around the house. Outside on the path to the back door, there were two drops of blood on the concrete, Gamble took scrapings of these as evidence. All up, 53 items would be tested by forensics when the crime scene examinations were over. While the crime scene was being processed, homicide detectives went up and down McPhee's Road to see if any of the neighbours had heard or seen anything at Beth's place the night before. They spoke to Beth's next-door neighbour, Diane, who told them about the car in Beth's driveway at 7.50pm. They spoke to Margaret McPhee, who told them about hearing the vehicle that sounded like her son's Toyota tray truck at 3.20am going past her house 
then returning minutes later. Then they visited Cherry McPhee further up the road. She had taken her dog for a walk shortly after 8 o'clock that morning and had noticed tyre skid marks on the front lawn area outside her own home. Cherry McPhee told the detectives that her sister-in-law Margaret had come to visit her soon after her walk and told her about the car she'd heard in the very early hours of the morning. She said, I realised that the skid marks must have been made by that vehicle. The skid marks were definitely not there the night before because I mowed. I like to keep everything nice. Detective Alan McFadden took Donald Cameron back to the Cowes police station to take his statement. Donald detailed his movements that morning and ended his narrative with he and Ian finding the body and heading to the police station. He signed his statement at 12.50pm. After talking to the police, Donald Cameron must have headed for home because when his wife Pam heard about a body being found in Rill, she rang him. Here are her words. I was at work at the San Remo and District Community Health Centre, where at about lunchtime a colleague informed me that a young woman had been found dead in a house in McPhee's Road Rill. Because of my earlier conversation with Fergus and knowing that Beth Barnard lives in McPhee's Road Rill, I thought it was her and immediately rang Donald. He informed me that it was Beth and that Vivian and the Land Cruiser were missing and the police were searching for her. Unlike her sister-in-law, Marnie Cairns, who had left work the moment she heard something was wrong, Pam Cameron stayed at work till just before 4pm. Pam would later use these words to describe Beth Barnard. She was treated by all of our family as a member of the family. She called Donald Uncle Donald or Grandpa, and my children treated her as a sister. I had formed a close friendship with her while treating her for a severe back injury. After police officer Peter McHenry had taken Dr Paul Flood to visit Fergus Cameron, he drove the doctor out to Beth's farmhouse in McPhee's Road. After the doctor pronounced life extinct and formally identified the body, Peter McHenry drove him back to the medical centre and took a statement of identification from him. He signed the declaration at 2.06pm. On the formal document, Dr Flood declared that he had identified the body of 23-year-old Elizabeth Catherine Barnard, who he had known for a year and had last seen on Sunday when she had visited him as a patient. On the next episode of The Vanishing of Vivian Cameron... Once the Land Cruiser was found in the vicinity of the Phillip Island Bridge with no sign of the missing Vivian Cameron, the possibility had to be considered that Vivian could have jumped off the bridge. I honestly don't know because we've always thought, well, (laughs) did she jump or did she catch a bus somewhere? 